This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, Last Stop, where I detail crimes that occur on public transportation. I've enjoyed researching these cases and presenting them to you because I've been able to travel the world, at least virtually. It seems that public transportation is used much more frequently in other parts of the world. We in the U.S. are very addicted to our cars, and in many places, public transportation is not readily available. I know when I've traveled to other places, I've been jealous of the convenience and ease of travel using subways, trains, and other forms of public transportation. So far, I've detailed cases from Japan and Brazil. This time, we'll be covering a story that took place in Mexico, our nearest neighbor to the south. In fact, it happened in a border town that had the reputation, at one time, of being the murder capital of the world, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. I'll start out by telling you about one shocking crime that happened in 2013, although its origin, if you believe the perpetrator, began with another series of murders that took place over a span of at least a decade. This is Chapter 4 of Last Stop, Diana, the Hunter of Bus Drivers, and the Murdered Women of Juarez. It was the morning of August 28, 2013. The city bus was traveling its usual route. Route 4A, also known as the Yellow Route, crossed through the main thoroughfares in downtown Ciudad Juarez, making several stops. There were approximately 20 passengers on the bus when a woman boarded. She rode the bus in silence for about 10 or 15 minutes. She did not stand out from the other passengers, all regular people traveling to school or jobs or downtown to shop or run errands. The only thing that later witnesses would recall as slightly different about her was her hair, which wasn't too unusual in itself, but she was almost too blonde. Her hair might have been a wig, they said. It didn't seem a natural color. Again, in the moments before anyone took notice of her, this wasn't very newsworthy. Lots of women wore wigs that weren't their natural color. After a few minutes of riding in the bus, the woman stood up and made her way to the front of the bus to depart at the next stop. Suddenly, she pulled out a pistol and, walking up to the bus driver, pointed the gun at his head and pulled the trigger. The driver, Roberto Flores Carrera, age 45, slumped over the steering wheel, dead. As the horrified passengers began to react to what they'd just witnessed, the woman calmly left the bus and disappeared into the city streets. The next day, on Thursday, the scene was repeated. Another bus driver on the same route was approached by the blonde rider. This time, she spoke. Witnesses heard her say to him, You guys think you're real bad, don't you? Before she pulled the trigger, killing 32-year-old Freddy Zarate Morales with a point-blank shot to the head. Again, she walked away before anyone had time to react. The police now realized that they had a serial murderer on their hands. The other bus drivers were terrified that they might be next. Over half of the 30 drivers who were assigned to Route 4A refused to come to work while the killer was still at large. That weekend, news outlets across the city began receiving emails from someone claiming to be the shooter. The email read, Creen porque somos mujeres, somos débiles, y puede ser que sí. Solo hasta cierto punto, pues aunque no contamos con quien no puede defender y tenemos la necesidad de trabajar hasta altas horas de la noche para mantener a nuestras familias, ya no podemos callar estos actos que nos llenan de rabia. I myself and the other women have suffered in silence, but we cannot stay quiet anymore. We were victims of sexual violence by the drivers on the night shift on the bus routes to the Maquilas. Y aunque muchas gente sabe lo que sufrimos, nadie nos defiende ni hace nada por protegernos. I am the instrument of vengeance for several women. We seem weak to society, but we're truly not. We're courageous, and if they don't show respect to us, we will make them respect us by our own means. We women of Juarez are strong. Y si no nos respetan, nos daremos a respetar por nuestra propia mano. Las mujeres juareneses somos fuertes. The emails were sent from a person who called herself Diana, la cazadora de choferes, or Diana, 
the hunter of bus drivers. The person calling herself Diana was referring to rapes and murders of women in the state of Chihuahua and in Ciudad Juarez in particular. Hundreds of women had been raped, murdered, mutilated, and discarded in the deserts and fields outside of the city for years. Diana now sought revenge for these murders, targeting the bus drivers who she accused of being responsible for these crimes. But over the years, there had been many theories as to who was really responsible for these femicides as they came to be known. To understand what was happening to the women of Juarez, we have to go all the way back to 1993, 20 years before Diana became their avenger. In the northern region of Mexico, bordering the U.S., sits the state of Chihuahua. Ciudad Juarez, a city that is home to over 1.3 million people, is a bordered town that butts up against El Paso, Texas. In 1993, with the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, the population began to explode. NAFTA, as it was more commonly called, ushered in the world's largest free trade zone. Many U.S. companies set up shop in the border city to take advantage of cheap labor for their factories. Impoverished citizens from throughout Mexico came to take jobs in the factories that churned out products 24 hours a day. Many people working day, evening, graveyard, or overnight shifts were required. Mexican citizens were hungry for these jobs that paid more than they could earn in other types of work, provided air-conditioned factories to work in, and even provided meals. By the early 1990s, over 700 factories, or maquiladoras, were established in Mexican border cities. They employed over 200,000 people by 1994. However, under the treaty, foreign companies were exempt from paying into local taxes. So while the population number swelled, there was not enough housing, childcare, or even basic utilities like water or electricity available. Shantytown sprang up on the outskirts of the city, where new residents quickly assembled shacks as makeshift homes. Many had no indoor plumbing, and electricity might be shared off a common generator, if there was any at all. Dirt roads miles long led to these communities. There was no public transportation that served these communities, so most of the residents traveled to and from city on foot. Once in the city proper, there were buses, but those without bus fare would walk the entire distance. The assembly line jobs were plentiful, no experience was necessary, and most positions did not require heavy lifting or technical skills. Because of this, many young girls applied and were hired for these jobs. The number of women employed outside of the home in Mexico grew at a rate that had never been seen before. Traditionally, in Mexican families, men served as the major breadwinners, while women stayed home and raised children, and perhaps did side jobs like cleaning, taking in wash, or sewing. Even when more opportunities arose for women to work, the culture of machismo, or men in the dominant power role, prevailed in many homes. It was seen as emasculating for men to allow their wives and daughters to work. In addition, women who wanted to work outside the home might be criticized as loose or sexually aggressive women who are probably cheating on their husbands. But this culture of machismo also contributed to domestic violence, and by the 1990s, women were increasingly filing for divorce to break free of their abusive partners. Some women viewed these new factory jobs as a way to become independent, to provide for themselves and their children. In some of these single-parent homes, the mothers applied for the jobs in the factories, but in greater numbers, their young daughters took jobs and brought their paychecks home to the family. The younger girls were happy to get out of the home, work, and socialize with others their age. It also provided income to purchase new clothes or go out on the town occasionally. Employers liked hiring the young women because they were quick learners, were often more reliable than male workers, and didn't show up with an attitude or try and challenge their bosses. They also, in many cases, were paid less than male employees. Other than factory work, the only other jobs available for women was working at the bars and restaurants, which were plentiful in the area. As a border city, Juarez attracted a younger college crowd who were looking for cheap booze and nightlife. Cantinas stayed open until the wee hours to serve these customers. Juarez also did a brisk drug and sex trade. 
Prostitution was legal in Mexico, as long as the women were over the age of 18. Other young women were hired at bars, not as sex workers, but to dance and serve alcohol. There were over 6,000 bars operating in Juarez alone. These jobs could sometimes pay more than factory work, but it seemed riskier given the violence surrounding drugs and gangs that was all too frequent at these venues. Juarez had high rates of violent crime, as it was the central seat of Mexican drug cartels. These criminal gangs competed with each other over ownership of the lucrative drug trade in border cities like Juarez. So in 1993, hundreds of girls and young women were traveling alone, often on foot, before dawn and also late at night, to and from their jobs, when women began to go missing from the streets of Juarez. The girls fit a pattern. They were all young, in their teens and early 20s, although a few were as young as 10 or 11, and some over 30. They were all attractive, dark-haired women and girls. Most were morenitas, as they were called in Spanish, girls with dark cocoa skin. How they disappeared also seemed to follow a pattern. They were traveling alone, some on their way to work or school, or on their way home. They were traveling by bus or on foot. They would be taken while waiting for the bus or when they were walking to or from a bus stop. When they were found, most had been raped, brutalized, and murdered, mostly by strangulation. Their bodies were mutilated, either pre- or post-mortem. They were then dumped in the sandy, weed-filled areas outside of town, in vacant garbage-strewn lots, or in fields. Their murderers didn't even bother to bury most of them. They were hastily discarded, some within yards of businesses or busy streets. They were left unceremoniously and unapologetically, like someone had just abandoned a sack of refuse they'd been burdened with. The families of these girls were horrified and grief-stricken. The beautiful daughters of Juarez were being raped and murdered. They wanted answers and they wanted justice. Most of them would get neither. When the families reported the missing girls to the Juarez Police Department, they were quickly dismissed. Girls run off with their boyfriends or lovers all the time, they were told. They'd come home when they were done, quote, having a good time. But the families knew better. Their daughters were hard workers and responsible, they said. They had gone missing on their way to class or to jobs. Some had children, and they would not have walked away from them. The police then accused some of the women of being loose. A lot of these girls worked in the bars and nightclubs and lived secret double lives, they explained to their families. They were probably involved in drugs, they said. They said that some of them were, quote, probably prostitutes who didn't want to come home or had gotten involved with a drug dealer and were partying and didn't want their families to know. Their mothers and fathers were furious. The police didn't even act interested enough to investigate. They told them to go home and wait and their daughters would come home eventually. When they couldn't get the Juarez police to take them seriously, some traveled to the state police department to report the disappearances. The local police were not trained to conduct criminal investigations, but they could have reported the missing women to the state police and asked for help. Instead, the families had to do it themselves. A mother of one of the missing girls reported that she didn't get much help from the state police either. When she tried to file a report explaining that her daughter went missing several days earlier and she'd been searching without luck and without help from the Juarez police, the officer began to question her. Did her daughter have a boyfriend? Did she dress in miniskirts? Angrily, she answered no. But why was he asking her that before he'd even asked where she was last seen or other relevant details? She was, again, quickly dismissed. Her daughter probably went off with some guy, he said, and he smirked at her as if privy to some dirty secret about her missing child. Invariably, days, weeks, or months after the women disappeared, they would be found murdered and left to rot in a field or empty lot. In 1994, no less than 10 bodies of young women were found within the Juarez city limits. Still, no movement was made to solve these crimes. Just like the murderers had discarded them like so much trash, the authorities also seemed to look upon the women of Juarez as disposable. Even after women began turning up dead, police continued to not take the reported disappearances seriously. They would say that they ran off with a boyfriend or were hanging out with drug dealers. Some would insinuate or downright accuse the women of being sex workers or drug addicts without any facts to support such statements. 
in their mind, labeling the women as loose, gave them permission to dismiss them out of hand. In a paper titled The Femicide Machine by Sergio Gonzalez Rodriguez, the author analyzes the cases of the missing and murdered women in Juarez by looking at cultural, societal, economic, and government structures that contributed to the problem. He alleges that the mentality of the men who were responsible for investigating the murders viewed the victims as deserving of their fate. He writes, In Ciudad Juarez, the masculine perception that every woman is merely a sexual object results when stereotypes surrounding the pure woman, wife and mother, are exhausted. A woman who works has no need for masculine protection and becomes the antithesis of the pure woman fantasy. One freed from financial dependence upon male family members and from a very young age, even following puberty, women are identified as dirty, interested only in money, sex, and fun during her leisure time. A circle of hatred is closed, and violence is unleashed. Unquote. While some officers engaged in victim-blaming, painting the women as responsible for their own murders due to their life choices, their mothers pointed out that a few of the murdered girls were prepubescent, only 10 or 11 years old. How did the police explain this, they asked. The finger was then pointed at the parents, particularly the mothers. They would say it was obvious that their mothers weren't caring for them correctly. The girls probably turned to others for care and attention, and that's why they could be taken advantage of. It was a sickening cycle of blame that never placed responsibility on the actual perpetrators who were committing these atrocious acts. Perhaps others saw that there was no consequences to raping and killing women in Juarez, and took that as permission to violently attack more young women. By September of 1995, more than 40 women had been murdered in Ciudad Juarez. Still, there were no arrests or even real suspects. Authorities would point out that there was a high crime rate in Juarez and many men were also being murdered. The homicide rate was due to the warring drug cartels in the area, they explained. It's true that by 2008, due to the violent drug wars in the border city, Juarez was considered the murder capital of the world, with an average of 130 murders per every 100,000 citizens. However, the crimes against women in Juarez weren't simply shootings, as were the homicides that involved men. The attacks against women were sexually motivated, as well as brutal. Many of the women were raped, as well as mutilated, with their nipples or breasts bitten or cut off, and their genitals cut out. Many had been strangled to death and sometimes stabbed as well. These were no ordinary drug murders, but rage-fueled, very personal attacks against women. During a four-month period between August and November of 1995, the bodies of eight women were found in one area of the desert, located on the southern outskirts of the city. Even though there had already been 40 women murdered by an unknown person or persons in Juarez, when family members tried to report missing women, they were still being told to wait for 72 hours and then come back and file a report. Even then, it would sometimes take several more days before an officer would be sent to investigate. Another odd thing was happening to the victims' families. Several received anonymous phone calls. When the girls were still missing, the callers would claim to know where they could be found. They might give them a false lead or say they would call back with more information, but the call would never come. After the women were found murdered and families were pushing the authorities to act and find the killers, some began to receive anonymous, threatening phone calls. They were told to shut their mouths or else they or other women in their family would also be killed. Who could be making these phone calls and for what purpose? When they were reported to police, they simply wrote them off as pranks. If they were just pranks, they were certainly cruel. But others wondered if something more sinister wasn't happening. There was at least one person in the state's attorney's office who was taking the murder seriously. Oscar Maynez Grijalva was a young criminologist who noticed similarities in a number of cases of murdered women in the state of Chihuahua. A side note. In Mexico, people use both their father and mother's surnames, with the mother's maiden name listed last. But their legal surname will be the father's name that is listed second. A bit confusing, I know. So, for example... The criminologist Oscar Maynez Grijalva will be subsequently referred to as Maynez, or his father's last name. 
Maness first started investigating by looking into the rumor that the women were being killed by members of a black market organ harvesting operation. He found no forensic evidence to suggest that women were being murdered so that their organs could be sold. Instead, he began to work on the theory that a serial killer might be on the loose. With university degrees in both psychology and criminology, Maynes looked at the similarities between several cases of raped and mutilated women in Juarez. After completing his analysis, he drafted a report that provided a psychological profile of the perpetrator and identified him as a likely serial killer. He presented his findings to his superior in the state's attorney's office in 1994, but was frustrated when he was simply thanked and his report was filed away. In 1995, Maynes found that even more murders had occurred in the same manner and following the same pattern as those he had outlined in his report. All the victims were female and were poor, young, and slender, with long dark hair and coffee-colored complexions. In addition, many of them were employees of the maquiladoras, or factories, in Juarez. By mid-1995, the number of murdered women topped 100. Still no comprehensive investigation into these murders by either local or state police agencies had occurred. Then there was a break in the case. Or was there? In October 1995, a young woman reported that she had been kidnapped, raped, and held captive for three days in a home in an upscale area of the city. She took officers to the home of 49-year-old Abdel Latif Sharif. Sharif was a scientist from Egypt who held a lucrative position as an engineer in one of the city's maquilas. The woman said Sharif had threatened to kill her and dump her body in the desert if she tried to escape. Even so, she had managed to escape on the third day. Sharif was picked up by police and arrested for rape and kidnapping. However, not long afterward, he was released when the woman recanted her report and then left town. But Sharif was now on the radar and was investigated further. It was discovered that he'd had two previous convictions for sexual assaults in the United States. He was also said to frequent Wattis' red light district. Several sex workers and other employees claimed to have seen him with several of the murdered women in the downtown area. One woman even said he'd confessed to her that he'd murdered some of the women in Juarez. He'd threatened to do the same to her if she told anyone, she said. Late that previous summer, a 17-year-old named Elizabeth Castro was last seen boarding a factory-owned shuttle bus to downtown Juarez. Several of the factories had begun offering bus service from the door of the factory to other bus lines downtown, so employees who left late at night or early in the morning would not have to walk in the dark. Elizabeth's body was found four days later along the highway, and coincidentally, not far from Sharif's apartment. Witnesses now came forward to say that Elizabeth had been seen several times in the company of the Egyptian. They knew him as the man who wore expensive clothes and drove a white sedan. On this information alone, police rearrested Sharif in December and charged him with the murder of Elizabeth Castro. Police also accused him of committing at least a dozen more murders of women. Although he was only charged with the murder of Elizabeth Castro, he was dubbed the Juarez Ripper by the media. The city breathed a sigh of relief. The monster had been captured. Or so they thought. At first, it seemed that Sharif might very well be responsible for the murders. The killings came to a stop after he was arrested in October, and there were no more murders of women reported in the first months of 1996. But by that spring, seven more bodies were found about 20 miles north of the city and just off the highway. Among the bodies was that of a 10-year-old girl. It had been determined that they had all been killed at different times. Most had been stabbed, and all had been sexually assaulted. By the end of the year, nine more bodies of young women would be found. Irrespective of the so-called Wattis Ripper locked away in the city's central jail, the murders continued. The killer was still at large. Now the women of Wattis began to mobilize. It was obvious that the real killer was still loose, and that they had been deceived into believing they were safe. Many others who had murdered loved ones had not received justice and now they decided to make their voices heard in hopes that it would stir the government to do something to catch the killer. Women began to march through the streets of Juarez to demand justice. 
they carried posters with photos of their missing and murdered daughters, mothers, sisters, and granddaughters. Criminologist Maynez pointed out that the murders began occurring even before Sharif moved to the Wadis area. He knew that Sharif could not be responsible for all the dead women and suspected the police were just trying to close their cases. And there was another problem. The families of the victims whose remains had been found and identified now questioned those identities. As an example, the body that Elizabeth Castro's family was told was their daughter's was later determined to be that of another woman, a woman who was four inches taller than Elizabeth and had fair skin and freckles. Elizabeth had an olive complexion. Others now had suspicions that the bodies they had buried were not those of their loved ones. When they were originally informed that their loved ones' bodies had been found, they'd asked to see them for identification or have DNA testing done. They'd been assured that there was no need and that the body recovered had been positively identified. Now it seemed that the dead women weren't even given enough respect to make sure that they were correctly identified. As 1997 concluded, 25 more bodies were found, bringing the total to more than 170. With the voices of the victims' families calling attention to the number of unsolved murders in Juarez, the government finally began to act. In 1997, the state attorney general created a task force to investigate the murders. Raids were held on the establishments in the red light district of Juarez. A few of the women had been seen in the area before they were found murdered. Gang members were rounded up, and hundreds of arrests were made on various charges. One of the gang members confessed to having participated in the murder of a young factory worker named Rosario Garcia Leal in 1995. He named other gang members who he said were also present when Rosario was abducted and murdered. He also named the gang leader, Sergio Armendariz Diaz, a.k.a. El Diablo, as being involved. Armendariz and several members of his gang were arrested and under intense pressure, and most likely torture, confessed to several murders. However, they told police the murders had been committed under the orders of the Egyptian, Abdel Sharif. Sharif had ordered to pay the gang thousands of pesos to murder women while he sat in jail. This way, he could make a case that he'd been falsely accused and that the real killer was still loose, they explained. Based on their confessions, Armendariz and 10 others were charged with seven murders. Later, the number of murders they were tied to reached a total of 17. Not long after they were jailed, the confessors all recanted, saying that they had been beaten and tortured by the cops until they agreed to sign the confessions. Sharif himself said he'd never met any of the men or even knew of the gang before this latest allegation against him. No money trail was ever found to tie Sharif and the accused men to one another. Even with all the accused murderers behind bars, the murders continued. The bodies of 38 more women were discovered during 1998. The voices against police and government authorities grew louder. Women were still dying, and the public was very skeptical of the assertions that Sharif or Armendariz and his gang were responsible. With criticism growing against them, Chihuahua State Attorney General invited profiler Robert Ressler to join the investigation. Ressler was one of the original members of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit and one of the very first criminal profilers. He had since left the FBI and was now consulting with various law enforcement agencies to help catch killers. Ressler was hired as an independent investigator to analyze the crimes and drop a profile of a likely suspect. He was also to give recommendations for improvements in investigation techniques for State Department's officers. His findings concluded that of the 160 murders that had occurred since 1993, 76 were linked by a common pattern. All of the murdered women were between the ages of 17 to 24, had been raped and strangled, and 12 had been snatched on their way to or from work at one of the local factories. Ressler suspected that one or more serial killers were active in Juarez. He believed the killer crossed the border from the U.S. into Mexico to select his victims. It was easier to find vulnerable women in Juarez who traveled by foot alone in the dark. He also believed, having been briefed on the investigation from the state attorney himself, that the previous investigators were doing the best they could with the limited resources at their disposal. 
He hoped that with the profile he'd provided, as well as the investigation skills he'd shared with them, that the state's police would be successful in capturing the killer. Oscar Maynez, the criminologist, agreed with Ressler's conclusion that a serial killer was responsible, but not that he had come from the U.S. He believed the perpetrator to be a Mexican citizen who was living and operating in plain sight, blending in easily with the population. A local would know the area well, where to take the women where he would not be detected, as well as the most desolate areas to dump their bodies. Maynes also doubted that the state police had provided Ressler with the complete data on their investigation. Ressler later found out that all the investigatory tools that he'd provided for the State Department had been scrapped as soon as the new state's attorney was appointed. There was hope, however, when the new state's attorney appointed a special prosecutor to the newly formed State Task Force for the Investigation of Crimes Against Women. Suli Ponce was eager to get started, but when she pulled the files on the now hundreds of murdered women cases, she found that more than 1,000 pieces of evidence that had been collected, including clothing and other items found at the crime scenes, had been burned. Robert Ressler's findings and reports as well had been tossed. She had to start from square one. Abdel Sharif sat in jail, awaiting trial for over four years. Mexican courts begin with the presumption of guilt until a defendant is proven innocent, the opposite of American courts. The accused's defense must disprove the charges against them. The ruling for conviction or acquittal then rests with the judge alone, not a jury. On March 29, 1999, Sharif was found guilty of the murder of Elizabeth Castro and sentenced to 30 years in prison. He continued to insist he was innocent. That same year, the judge cleared him of the charges connected to Armendariz and the gang members. They all remained in jail as a result of their forced confessions. And still, the killings continued. The Mexican president reached out to President Bill Clinton to ask for help. In March, help arrived in the form of four FBI profilers on loan from the Behavioral Analysis Unit. They, like Rustler before them, were to provide a suspect profile and also provide investigatory training to the state police. They spent time going over the theories that the state police had been working with, whether a serial killer was responsible, black market organ traffickers, sex trade kidnappers, or even Satanists who were using the women as ritual sacrifices. Their final conclusion was that the murders were not connected. The FBI report states, quote, The team determined that the majority of the cases were single homicides. It's too premature and irresponsible to state that a serial killer is on the loose in Juarez, unquote. Although Sharif had only been convicted of one murder, the state investigators still pointed to him as a serial murderer. The state investigators ultimately dismissed the FBI findings as they did not confirm their own conclusion that one man was likely responsible for the majority of the murders. Days after the FBI left Mexico, another girl was abducted. Miraculously, she would survive and give the police a whole new group of suspects to pursue. A 14-year-old factory worker only identified as Nancy ended her shift at 1 a.m. She boarded the factory-provided bus that would drive her to the outskirts of town, where she lived in one of the city's many shantytowns. She had only begun working at the factory three weeks earlier. She had taken the job to help provide for her mother and her six siblings. She had lied about her age to get the job. The minimum age to be legally employed in the factories was 16. That night, March 18, 1999, the other passengers departed at their stops, one by one. She was the last one left on the bus. Suddenly, she noticed that the bus was going in the wrong direction and was heading out into the desert. She questioned the bus driver, who told her he was having mechanical issues with the bus and was just looking for a service station. He then began to laugh as he pulled the bus off the road and onto the dirt. Are you scared, he asked, leering at her. She said he then asked her, have you ever had sex? He approached and grabbed her by the throat. It was the last thing she remembered until she came to, lying in the dirt, bleeding and battered. She crawled along the dirt road to reach a small house with a porch light on. 
the occupants opened their door to see a young girl, bruised and bleeding, some of her clothes torn away. She was barely conscious. They called for help, and she was rushed to the hospital. She survived and was able to identify her rapist as the company shuttle bus driver, Jesus Manuel Guardado. Guardado had previously been charged with domestic abuse against his pregnant wife. Upon questioning her, she told police that her husband had revealed to her that he'd killed several of the women whose bodies were found outside of Juarez. He'd threatened to kill her too, but she had been too afraid to report him. Guardado was arrested and brought in for questioning. He said that he and four other men, three of whom were also company shuttle bus drivers, were responsible for several of the recent rapes and murders. The other four men were also arrested, and all five were charged with the murders of seven women. Perhaps to save face on having tried and convicted Sharif on one murder and accused him and the gang of several others, the special prosecutor, Ponce, reported that these bus drivers were also connected with Sharif. Sharif, she said, had approached a convicted drug dealer in the jail and promised to pay him $1,200 per month to kill four women every 30 days. Again, this plot was supposedly to prove him innocent of being the Wattis Ripper. The drug dealer, in turn, enlisted the bus drivers to carry out the murders. Guardado, she went on to explain, was the ringleader who divided the profits with the other hired killers. The story matched a bit too closely with the former allegations against Sharif, that he had enlisted the gang members for the same purpose. Now another man had been caught almost red-handed, but he too, according to authorities, was in collusion with Sharif. It seems the police had identified their boogeyman, and nothing would sway them to a different truth. And still, the killings continued. Bodies continued to be found, and by March 2001, over 300 women in Juarez had been murdered. In November 2001, eight more bodies were found, this time in a cotton field. This discovery was made different by the fact that the field was located just a few yards from a busy intersection in the center of town. The killer or killers seemed unconcerned enough to dispose of bodies almost in plain view of likely witnesses. As well, girls were being snatched in broad daylight from in front of bus stops and while walking along city streets and roads. It seemed that the killer or killers now believed that they could murder with impunity. But the state police once again had a problem. The men that they had accused of being serial murderers and now sat behind bars awaiting trial could not be the killers. What to do? Why, point the finger at more bus drivers, of course. Two more bus drivers, Victor Garcia Uribe and Gustavo Gonzalez Mesa, were arrested and before long confessed to the murders of the eight women found in the cotton field. Garcia's wife reported that men dressed in black with ski masks over their faces arrived at their home and beat her husband before taking him away. She thought he'd been abducted. Three days later, she finally found him in police custody, bruised and battered and very ill. He told her that he'd been tortured by the police until he confessed to the murders. He'd been burned on his stomach, hand, face, and testicles. He'd been bound so long, one of his hands had sustained nerve damage, and he could no longer move it. I couldn't take the torture anymore, he told her. Gonzalez had received much of the same treatment. They'd also threatened to kill his entire family if he didn't confess, he later told the media. They burned him with cigarettes, used a cattle prod on him, and beat him all night and into the next morning. His wife was pregnant, and they threatened to kill his unborn child. He, too, confessed. The police said that they'd been monitoring Garcia for some time, as he'd been named earlier by one of the previously accused gang members as having been involved in abducting women. The public was skeptical. If he'd been monitored for so long, how had he been able to abduct and kill several more women? It had been determined that some of the women found in the field had been killed over a year earlier, and some more recently. How was it that he wasn't apprehended earlier? The state deputy attorney general then doubled down on this ludicrous story by saying that Garcia could continue to rape and murder women even while being watched by police because they did not have the manpower to monitor him more than part-time. Also, they explained, they didn't want to tell him all the time because if he knew he was being watched, he would stop committing the murders and would be much harder to catch. Okay, say it with me. Uh, what? 
Garcia's wife told reporters that her husband was innocent. He worked the same bus route every day, and she was by his side, helping to collect the fares Monday through Saturday. He did not work on Sundays. How could he have murdered eight women without her knowledge, she insisted. Soon after, she began getting anonymous phone calls, threatening her life. In the year 2000, Vicente Fox became Mexico's new president. In late 2001, calling the killings in Juarez a national shame, he promised to involve federal authorities in investigating the murders. In February of 2002, they took over the investigation. Seven different special prosecutors have been in charge of the investigation, but no real changes or improvements in the tools of the investigation had resulted. They found that the public prosecutors continued to victim blame. One even went so far as to say that, quote, women with a nightlife who go out very late and come into contact with drinkers are at risk. It's hard not to go outside when it's raining and not get wet, unquote. Families were not kept informed of the investigation, not even when bodies were discovered. Even those who continually pleaded with the police department to continue searching for their loved ones were not informed when new bodies were discovered. Some didn't find out until days later, when they returned once again to ask police for any updates. The federal investigators also discovered that none of the possible theories had been confirmed nor ruled out. They still had not decided whether they were working to identify drug dealers, sex traffickers, organized crime, alleged organ traffickers, or Satanists as their main suspects. The federal investigators reported that they had uncovered incompetence and downright negligence in the state police's investigation into the murders. They refocused their investigation into the state police themselves. On January 29, 2004, 13 members of the state police were arrested on suspicion of drug trafficking and murder. The bodies of 12 men had been discovered buried in the backyard of a home belonging to a member of the state police department. His name was Alejandro Garcia, and he confessed that he'd taken part in the killings on the orders of the state police and the drug cartel headed by Vicente Carrillo Fuentes. The home had been used as a safe home for his drug smugglers. Several of the bodies found buried at the home exhibited signs of torture. Some had been suffocated using plastic bags, while others were smothered to death with duct tape placed over their nose and mouths. Members of the state police had been working alongside the drug traffickers to move marijuana and cocaine across the border through Juarez. More arrests of officers were made, including six department commanders. An informant who claimed to be one of the drug traffickers made a chilling admission. Some of the rapes and murders of the Juarez women had occurred in celebration of successful drug runs across the border. Sometimes when you cross a shipment of drugs to the United States, he was quoted as saying in the Dallas Morning News, adrenaline is so high that you want to celebrate by killing women. Another informant later corroborated this claim, saying that some of the gang members liked to wear the victim's nipples like trophies on chains around their necks. President Fox appointed Maria Lopez Urbina as special federal prosecutor to review the homicide investigations in Juarez. In her report, she found that more than 125 state police officers were guilty of torture, abuse of power, and negligence in the Juarez murder investigations. Of the 205 murder files she reviewed, 101 had not gotten past the investigative stage. The report stated that notorious inactivity and negligence had led to the loss of evidence and the inadequate protection of crime scenes. In 29 cases, investigators had not collected fibers or other evidence at the crime scenes and had not interviewed key witnesses, including those who had discovered the bodies. As a result, her report concluded that, quote, some of the homicide investigations will be practically impossible to solve, unquote. Did the murders then stop? Unfortunately, the answer is no. There were 18 more murders of women in 2004 and 31 in 2005. That same year, Ardell Sharif, the Wadis Ripper, died in jail due to complications of cirrhosis of the liver. Also that year, bus driver Victor Garcia was finally released when the charges against him were overturned. 
the judge deemed a key witness's statements to be unreliable. The second accused bus driver, Gustavo Gonzalez, died in jail under suspicious circumstances in 2002. The killings continued at least a dozen or more each year. Then in 2008, the numbers skyrocketed. 87 women were murdered, 24 of which were found to have been sexually abused and subjected to extreme violence. In 2009, 164 women were killed in Ciudad Juarez. That year, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights condemned the Mexican government for its inefficiency and negligence in the Juarez murders investigations. It pointed out the lack of measures taken to prevent violence against women, the failure to conduct proper investigations into their murders, and the lack of guaranteed access to the judicial system for women. In 2010, over 300 more murders of similar nature were committed against women in Juarez. The victims were found raped, stabbed, strangled, and mutilated. Then Diana showed up and took her revenge. So who was Diana, the hunter of bus drivers? To this day, no one knows. She disappeared off the bus and into the city after she killed the second bus driver, never to be seen again. She may have been any one of the hundreds of women in Juarez who had given up any hope of receiving justice. Even those officials who truly seemed to want to help were unable to stop the killings. Why did Diana single out bus drivers? The testimony of the only surviving witness, Nancy, had identified a bus driver, but a company bus driver, not a city employee, as her attacker. This made bus drivers suspect from then on in the eyes of some women. Perhaps some bus drivers were attacking and killing women. Women throughout Juarez said they didn't feel safe anywhere. Public service announcements in Juarez cautioned women not to go out after dark, not to travel alone, or walk in unlit places. They were told to take a cab if they could, instead of walking along the streets at night. These messages put the responsibility solely on the women to take measures to keep themselves from being murdered. Where were the public service announcements directed towards the perpetrators? Hey guys, don't rape women. Hey dudes, stay away from women in case you have the urge to kill. Sickening, I know, but seriously. Women would state to reporters and anyone who cared to ask that they didn't feel safe in a bus alone with a driver or taking bus lines to more isolated areas. And cabs? Not only could they not afford one, but even if they could, they'd be trapped alone in a car with a man. There was nowhere they felt truly safe as a woman in Juarez. Maybe Diana felt trapped. Maybe she'd been raped or sexually assaulted. Maybe her mother or daughter or friend had been murdered. Whatever the reason, she decided to take the law into her own hands. Were bus drivers to blame for some of the murders? Perhaps. Or was it a serial killer or sex traffickers? I think it might have been a combination of all of the above and more. It's possible that once women were found murdered and these crimes were ignored by police, some of who were most likely complicit in covering them up, others took this as permission to devalue the life of women and more killings occurred. The attitude the police took in dismissing the claims of missing girls and women showed that they valued their lives very little, if at all. If nothing else, they were complicit in allowing the perpetrators to continue preying upon women. Some studies say that men may have lashed out at women, angered that they were becoming independent, taking jobs outside of the home, and earning their own money. These men, some believed, hated to see women becoming empowered and opposed it violently. Maybe there was a serial killer at work in Juarez as well. The mutilations of some of the murder victims point to this type of perpetrator. As far as organ harvesters and satanic cults, nothing was ever found to verify these theories. More likely, many of the murders were committed by a more ordinary and far more deadly perpetrator, an abusive husband or boyfriend, jilted suitor, or rapist who now felt free to not only abuse or rape, but kill without consequence. Diana may have sought to take revenge, killing two innocent men in the process, but it does not begin to solve the problem of female homicide in Juarez. Instead, those who are making the biggest difference are the women of Juarez 
who have organized and started grassroots efforts like Casa Amiga and Ni Una Mas, which means not one more. Casa Amiga was Juarez's first rape crisis and sexual assault center. Ni Una Mas's goal is to raise international awareness about violence against women in Juarez. They have joined up with other women's organizations across the globe to demand that the Mexican government enact policies to prevent the kidnapping and murder of women and to fully investigate the crimes that have already taken place. I've included links to some of these organizations in the show notes. You can find out more information or how you can help there. Finally, I want to leave you with a first-hand account of a mother who lost her daughter to murder in Juarez. I know I have not provided many of the victims' names in this episode. As of this writing, over 400 women have been murdered in Juarez since 1993, and only a tiny fraction of those crimes have resulted in an arrest or conviction. To be honest, I found the sheer number of victims to be overwhelming, and I struggled to find a way to tell this story without feeling like the victims continue to be invisible or unknown. I failed in that regard, but I feel that reading the following will give you a sense of a real person who lived and loved and was loved by those who knew her. In this way, perhaps, all the women in Juarez who were so cruelly taken from this world might be honored as well. This is a letter written by Norma Andrade, whose daughter, Lilia Alejandra Garcia Andrade, went missing on February 14, 2001. Ale's last day with us. She woke up at 6 a.m., and started getting ready to go to work. Then she left me in charge of the kids. She slept on the ground floor of the house, and she asked me for bus money. She took money from my purse and went to the factory. She wanted to take computer training courses and become a journalist. Lilia Alejandra was 17 and had two small children. You'd see her with her babies, and she looked like a little girl playing with her dolls. She was very disappointed with her boyfriend, so she preferred to live with us. We talked. That's when I asked her to look for a job and study at the same time. She had to be someone in life. She agreed. She settled in well at work. Since she was pretty, they used her as a model to pose next to the products the factory produced. They took her picture a lot. Since then, I've wondered if they gave those pictures to the kidnappers, and that's why they chose her. Ali's boyfriend kept bothering her to get back with him. He'd come looking for her at home, and he waited for her outside work. He harassed her, pressured her. That's why every day I would go pick her up at the factory. She got off at 7. The day she disappeared, I couldn't pick her up because I was taking a sex ed course. Imagine how many times I've dreamt and thought about the fact that Ollie would be alive if I hadn't been absent that afternoon. Here, one mistake is a life sentence. She disappeared on February 14th, Valentine's Day when she left her job at the Maquiladora. They found her dead seven days later in a vacant lot across from the Plaza Juarez shopping center, a busy area. During the week that Ollie went missing, we looked for her at the Red Cross, at the clinics. We printed a thousand flyers. I didn't want to accept that they'd taken her. I wondered if she'd had an accident or if she'd run away from home. But then I'd think, Ollie isn't like that. She'd have said something. She was a very obedient girl. Sometimes she fought with her sisters, but that always happens between brothers and sisters. We went to file a missing persons report, which they reluctantly took. They ignored us until we insisted. Even then, that didn't get us very far. They said my daughter had doubtless run off with her boyfriend. They always lied to us. You have to remember how they put it to Doña Eva, whose daughter disappeared years ago, and no one has gone after the ones who did it. Why look for her? Don't put your head in the lion's mouth. And when we insisted, their answer was, we'll see who gets tired of this first. When we got back home, a woman neighbor told us that they had reported the discovery of a body with the same characteristics as Alejandra on TV. Then I got a phone call confirming that the body they found had the clothes we described on the flyer. I collapsed. They found me on the floor crying, completely broken down, inconsolable. The autopsy revealed that my daughter had died on February 19th. Her body was half naked and wrapped in a bedspread. The local authorities received tips from witnesses who saw Ali being kidnapped by a group of men in a car, but they refused to investigate these testimonies in depth. 
One lady saw how they hurriedly dragged her to a car and how she shouted, desperate, terrified. She fought and struggled. Help! Help me, someone, help! No one helped her. The FBI from El Paso, Texas, has a report where someone recounts Alejandra's kidnapping in detail. It was on Rancho El Bercero Street, and they put her into a white Thunderbird that was always parked in front of a nearby TV repair shop around the corner, where they took her later. When they were kidnapping my daughter, when she resisted her pickup, they beat her and broke her nose. The car was rocking as if someone inside were fighting, or as if a couple were having sex in it. That's what the witnesses said. The owner of that shop is a guy named Jorge, and he's related to this guy Raul, who's a powerful drug dealer. Raul's gang mutilates their victims, men's testicles, girls' breasts. Anyone who wants to work for them has to go through an initiation, kill whatever person they're ordered to, even someone from their own family. This blood pact guarantees silence. The authorities investigated the staff at the shop, and they said they did not find any evidence to establish any alleged responsibility. Who believes them? They didn't even accept that my daughter had been kidnapped. They insist she knew her attacker. The FBI also reports on how girls are kidnapped downtown. There's an individual involved they call El Licenciado, who, along with his assistant, a skinny, arrogant guy with a mustache, are the front for baiting victims. They approach girls who come into the music store near the cathedral. The girls go into the store, and when they leave, young guys come up to them and start talking to them. They talk about the computer school 20 or 30 feet down the way on the same street. Somehow or other, the girls are fooled into going to El Licenciado's nearby restaurant, where they attack and tie up the girls and then take them out into an alley where many prostitutes work. The guy in charge of transporting the victims is called El Huero, and he's the owner of another bar. El Huero belongs to the drug cartel and operates out of a bunch of other dives. He has an accomplice called El Riche, whose job is to pay off the police to get rid of the bodies of the murdered girls. The authorities have never investigated these facts. My family had to confront all of this without any help at all. One day, by accident, my oldest daughter, Malu, discovered the photographs the forensic experts took of Alejandra's body. She was deeply affected. For some time, she became aggressive and foul-mouthed and mistreated everyone. My mother took refuge in fear. We had a lot of angry discussions. She said I should just let Alejandra rest in peace, that no matter what, her homicide would go unpunished, and she asked why I was looking for trouble by running around with other women in search of justice. She wanted to protect me. Ever since Alejandra's death, Jose, my husband, changed completely. He used to be happy, strong, and he'd smile. I remember a photograph they took of him when he was with Alejandra, the day she turned 15, and they cut the cake. He was so happy. It was like when we met a long time ago. Then he became consumed with rancor, savage hatred, sadness. Every day he wanted to get into the trailer truck he drove, fill it with dynamite, and run it into the house where Alejandra's killers were. A thirst for vengeance, fury, and impotence broke him down little by little. He became very ill. One day they discovered terminal cancer. We could only help him die decently. Who pays for all this if the killers and the ones who protect them go free? They kidnapped my daughter, like so many other girls, right off the street. They beat her. They tied her hands. They raped her. They tortured her. They mutilated her while she was alive. They burned her with cigarettes. They killed her by strangling her until she asphyxiated. And then they threw her into a vacant lot, like she was garbage. Alejandra. I looked at her in her coffin, and I almost didn't recognize her. She who had had such a pretty long neck was now like a hunchback, sunk down into her shoulders. They broke her. She faced an inhuman death all alone. She was just on her way home, like so many other girls. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. I want to give a special thank you to Lorena Garcia, who read Diana's words in Spanish at the beginning of the episode. Thanks, Lorena. 
Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.